Welcome everyone to the weekly spotlight from Diversity Naps. My name is Kabir Seth. Saturday in New York actually turned out to be a beautiful day. Hopefully it continues the rest of the week. If this is your first time joining us, Diversity Naps is a grassroots coalition. It's made up of researchers, producers, parents, and teachers. And our mission is to raise awareness and engage in research about the need for inclusive equitable and diverse children's media and this podcast is one of the ways we do that every week we send out a newsletter highlighting great pieces we found relating to diversity and inclusion Um, i pick some of them to discuss on this program and i hope listening to it will encourage you to go out and read it as well as uh, share it with with folks Um, this program also welcomes people from the children's industry to discuss their work, whether it's producers or researchers, really everyone is welcome. And this week, I actually got to speak with Dr. Vicki Katz, who is an associate professor in the School of Communication and Information at Rutgers University. And our discussion is around her work on digital equity. So um, definitely stick around for that or just fast forward. Uh, I also wanted to mention again that Diversity in Apps is looking for a summer intern to help refresh our website. If you have website experience or know someone who does, please email diversityinapps at gmail.com with the subject website help, diversityinapps at gmail.com. All right. This week's newsletter is all about dolls, specifically the focus on established companies introducing diverse dolls to their lineup, as well as uh, up-and-comers focusing on a variety of segments, some some of which have been ignored in the past. I want to touch on a few pieces and a few companies from our newsletter, so I'm going to bounce around a little, sort of do these in sort of bite-sized chunks. So the first, uh, Sandhya Nankani, one of our founding members at Diversity Naps, has a piece up on the Cooney Center blog that does a really nice job rounding up the plans many companies have, um, Disney, Mattel, DC Comics, um, what they're doing to empower girls. Now, um, Sandhya actually writes about... um, the companies that presented a few weeks ago at the White House. This was part of a conference um, I'm sure that I've mentioned a couple times on this podcast focused on breaking gender stereotypes in children's media and toys. So definitely check that piece out um, and it, it, it links back to um, to some other companies as well. And Sundia actually touches on the, uh, the Misty Copeland doll that Barbie recently launched and we have an article in the newsletter that delves a little bit more into it um, for those of you who don't know, Misty Copeland is the first African-American woman to be named principal ballerina at the very famous American Ballet Theater. So obviously, right away, the doll looks, um, looks different. She has you know, defined muscles. Her face obviously looks like Misty's. They talked about how they made her eyes, um, her, her eyes and, and lips a little bit different. And obviously, the skin color is, is of course, different from, from the typical... Barbie and one of the things I was surprised to learn was that um, Misty actually played with with Barbies up until she was 14 actually sewing clothes for them but one of the things that she's doing she talks about in the piece 
how you know this is a step in the right direction and and obviously um you know she's she's really excited to see this but it doesn't really stop there um she's she's taking steps to encourage more young people from underrepresented communities to get involved with ballet she's partnering with the boys and girls club to help make this happen so it's good to see that sort of uh continuing continuing to happen and not something that's sort of just a, a one-off um piece um and you know barbie's a huge company it's it's making diversity sides really it's mattel um as part of uh, barbie's part of mattel and our newsletter um, talks about some startups like I Am Elemental, um, whose CEO, Julie Kerwin, we had on a few weeks ago on this podcast. And um, in our newsletter this week, we also talk about Willowbrook Dolls. We link to them. They just had a successful Kickstarter to create modern girl dolls with ambitions as diverse as computer science to journalism. Um, so really, they're they're focused on really creating dolls that they feel um, don't, you know, that don't exist right now in the market. Um, we also talk about two new companies that are actually targeting boys with their dolls. The first is Wonder Crew, which launched to bring a focus on social emotional learning. So mostly, um, you know, toys that sort of talk about relationships or friendship or really just these things around um, teamwork social emotional learning are normally geared towards girls and crewmates um, wonder crew who creates this line of dolls called crewmates um, actually encourage teamwork and friendship with sort of the usual action and adventure that um, you know that boys toys are are associated with and the second company is called melanites which is a set of of dolls targeted to minority boys um, and it's really what what they talk about in their mission is battling social pressures of of hyper masculinity which again I think really relates to to what Wonder Crew is doing as well um, what I really liked about Melanites is that it's the founder actually talks about how rather than making a doll that was a profession so you know was something it's really built around this idea of being a doer or a thinker or a maker or a performer, which I thought was really neat, sort of an interesting spin. So like I said, it's it's in the newsletter. Um, we link to, to all these companies as well as a few more. So definitely check out Sunday's piece to get an overview of, of what all these toy companies are doing, big and small. And then um, we link into to a few more specifically. So with that, let's get to our interview with Dr. Vicki Katz. Our guest today is Dr. Vicki Katz. She's an associate professor in the School of Communication and Information at Rutgers University, as well as an author of Kids in the Middle, How Children of Immigrants Negotiate Community Interactions for Their Families, and the co-author of Understanding Ethnic Media, Producers, Consumers, and Societies. Her research explores how immigrant families address communication challenges attending their social incorporation into the United States. Dr. Katz, thanks very much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. So when I went to school back in the 90s, I guess I was in middle school and high school um, through the kind of the Clinton administration, there was a lot of talk about the digital divide and this idea of, there was a lot of talk about the information superhighway and then the digital divide. And I think from, from some of your research and also from some of your 
description that that really isn't the right description for um, for what we the way we should be talking about um, access to the internet. Correct. Right. So in the nineties, when the internet was becoming popularly available. Uh, the term digital divide started being used by the Clinton administration as a way to emphasize that there were people who had access and people who did not, um, and kind of created this binary between the haves and the have-nots in a way that made sense in the early days of the Internet, um, but has perhaps outgrown its usefulness. Sure. Uh, now that the internet is so widely available and now that the prices and types of devices that can connect us to the internet are so much more diversified, the question is much more nuanced, I suppose, than uh, a yes or no on access. And right. you would also be hard-pressed to find a family in America today that has no access to any devices or to the internet. We know that um, low-income uh, people of color and young people are disproportionately likely to have mobile devices uh, as opposed to the general population. Um, we will talk more about the families in our study, but the sure. vast majority of people do have some kind of access. So the question becomes, how, what kind of quality access do they have and uh, how consistent are their connections right and when we talk about connection obviously your focus was primarily was your focus was on the home um, specific to families when we talk about schools I think w did you have a stat that something like 90 99 percent of schools are connected to broadband yeah that's not my stat that's okay. connect, that's connected that's gotcha. uh, the Obama administration's Sh program to get um, high-speed broadband to all of America's schools, and they're estimating that this year or within the, within the coming year, 99% uh, mm -hmm. of American classrooms will be connected to broadband. Right, right. So when we're talking specific to schools, that um, the coverage there is obviously almost 100% or expected to be 100% within the coming years. So when we, when we talk about your research, that was focused specifically on low-income families. Yeah, and so what, I, what I'm interested in is, you know, once we've got to the point where we've basically saturated the schools, um, then to me the question becomes if you're going to have equal access, kids don't spend all of their time in school. In fact, they don't even spend the majority of their time in school. Mm -hmm. What happens when we stop thinking about children as students in schools and start thinking of them as kids in families? Um, what happens to extending learning beyond the school day uh, at home and in the community? What does it look like outside? And I'm not alone in my interest in that. The, there's uh, recently been initiatives taken up by HUD mm -hmm. uh, called Connect Home, uh, and they're working to uh, wire uh, public housing around right, the country. Right. Um, yeah. And there have been a number of other initiatives. So as we have started expanding our look from the schools more broadly, the real question and the one that really motivates me is what happens um, in kids' homes of that course. might be able to support the learning they're doing in school. Right. I, uh, I heard some about something uh, about the, uh, the HUD programs uh, a couple weeks ago at the Common Sense Media Awards. Mm -hmm. The uh, FCC chairman spoke there about, about his work. Um, so 
when we we talk about um, the the work the Obama administration has been trying to do in schools, and then the the program that's really focused or or started to focus on um, on families was Connect to Compete. And what was Connect to Compete, and sort of how what was the research that you were doing a, around it? Sure. So Connect to Compete still exists, but. Uh, the 2010 uh, broadband plan that was developed by the FCC uh, was kind of a, a grand map for America to increase connectivity across the board. And uh, one of the plans that it had was uh, subsidized broadband access for low-income families that would be coupled with uh, access to lower-cost, often refurbished devices and sure. locally available um, skills training and support. Then we had the Great Recession and the funding for any um, or the possibility of funding for any such programs disappeared. I see. What emerged in its place was a public-private partnership called Connect to Compete, uh, which meant that local telecommunications companies, for a variety of reasons, whether it was a condition of a merger or um, other kinds of incentives, would offer broadband access to families uh, whose kids were on free or reduced cost lunch through the school, uh, so that was a financial component, mm-hmm. for $9.95 a month. And it was rolled out differently in different places, unevenly, as you would imagine. Sure. And in some places was paired with initiatives to um, make sure that families also had access to devices. In other places it wasn't. Um, and in none of the districts where we did interviews was it paired with formal efforts to um, support skills training for parents and kids. And so this was spe- this was obviously state-specific. So in other words, a, a block of money was provided to the state and sort of they determined how the Connect to Compete program was going to be run in their state. Not, not quite. Um, it was actually district level. Um, I see. Okay. And it really depended on the telecommunications company in the district. Uh, so oh, wow. Okay. Not not nearly as uh, intentional as you are imagining. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I see. So it was a, at a district level. And, yeah. so, um, and so we were interested, what I was interested in is you've got this top-down policy that's attempting to address a problem for families. Um, how do families respond to that? How do they react to it? Um, what's the bottom-up response? Uh, to a top-down digital equity policy was sure. the question that was driving the work. And um, when you say bottom bottom up, I think what you talk about this was sort of maybe I'm I'm jumping to the to the end here, but really w- what your research started to reveal was that um, there needs to be a focus at the local level in terms of libraries, community organizations, etc. That that drive. Um, this um, this goal of, of equitable access, right? But we came to that later. Um, sure. You know, we started really from the presumption that a lot of uh, policies and programs that are designed for um, low income people and families in particular are often very well intentioned, but haven't necessarily spoken to the families they're trying to serve to make sure that what they're offering is what people need. Um, <clears throat> And so I was interested in going to the families and letting them tell us, both parents and kids, in their own words, what their experiences had been with, you know, challenges to connectivity and what their connectivity looked like and what 
they saw the the benefits to be and the rewards and what they thought the risks were. Sure. Um, and I was interested because this program was being rolled out uh, at district levels and differently depending on which company was doing it. I wanted to be able to compare how people who were demographically very similar to each other uh, were experiencing it in different local environments and what differences that made for decisions they made about adopting uh, technology in their homes, both co related to Connect to Compete and more broadly, you know, what families were prioritizing buying on their own dime, uh -huh. uh, and uh, how they were engaging it, whether there were local level differences to how parents and kids uh, use the internet uh, and related technologies together and by themselves. And you talked to, you were, you were talking to families then in, in three states, California, Arizona, and Colorado. Yes. So we were in one district in each state, um, uh -huh. one just outside of San Diego, California, uh, one just outside of Tucson and in Denver. Uh, and all three were chosen because they serve high poverty um, d uh, children. Uh, uh -huh. They serve uh, predominantly Mexican heritage uh, families. And so we were interested in looking at not just Latino families as the largest uh, and fastest growing demographic of children in the United States, but often uh, very understudied, but more specifically Mexican origin because Latinos are very diverse under that broad umbrella and we wanted sure. to look at the highest need group amongst Latinos because children of um, Mexican heritage, whether their parents are immigrants or native born overall, um, are the most likely to be growing up in poverty, the most likely to have a parent who hasn't finished high school, and the most likely to have a parent that struggles to speak English. And so we wanted to see what people's decisions looked like in the families that are having the hardest time. I see. And so um, when, you, when you were studying these families, you mentioned some of the things that you were asking them. What, what connectivity did they have? How are they were... Um, they were sharing connection. What devices did they currently have? How many devices? Um, were were there things that were cl clearly different across the uh, the different districts that that you studied? And were there things that were there common themes that sort of emerged? Definitely. So let me just give you um, a one minute summary of what it is that we did. So sure. In each school district, um, we spent between two and three weeks, myself and a very talented team of bilingual, bicultural. Um, graduate and undergraduate students, we worked with the district to select um, two uh, schools, kindergarten through eighth grade, and worked um, with school staff to do the recruiting of families for us, which is why we had such great response rates. I see. But in the span of those two or three weeks in each site, we interviewed between 50 and 60 families, parents and kids separately, but simultaneously, so between 100 and 120 interviews per site. Okay. for about an hour each in their language of preference, Spanish or English, either at home or at school. So we collected an enormous amount of data and it was open-ended questions. So we really, the questions were designed to give us a real sense of what people's experiences were in their own words rather right. than pre-proposing categories to them. We found a lot of things that were common. Um, despite being low income, all of these families had far more technology than uh, programs like Connect to Compete would have presumed. Multiple mm -hmm. devices, they might have been old um, or not working as well as people would like, but usually multiple devices are connected to the internet. 
Um, they'd made creative uh, decisions and strategies in order to afford devices and to afford connectivity and to maintain connectivity. Um, even if it meant, you know, foregoing Christmas or birthday presents, even if it meant foregoing car repairs that needed doing, because they were totally on board with the idea that connectivity was critical for their kids' success. I see. I think that was one of the key things that was the same across all three states, where parents making very thoughtful and often very difficult decisions about what to forego in order to have connectivity. But they'd been connected for much longer than Connect to Compete would have presumed. Connect to Compete thought they'd be connecting new uh, clients, new customers. Right. Very, we found, you know, with 170 families, 37 uh, were using Connect to Compete, even though they all qualified for it, and only eight were getting online for the first time. So there was a real mismatch between the way the program was designed and what they presumed families need and what families actually needed. Right. And so um, when when you talk about, the, you know, the expectation of the program was that it was um, going to be connecting people for the first time, and with that expectation then was there sort of um, a... I guess what I want to say, like, is was there a question of really how much access it was providing? My understanding was it was like an Ethernet cord and yeah, um, and a connection, and that really was not that didn't suffice for a family. Right. So what the program generally provided to families was a pretty uh, slow up and download speed, sometimes as low as four or five megabits. Um, I see through an Ethernet cord connected to a modem. Okay. And, you know, uh, over a quarter of the families only had connection through a mobile device, so an Ethernet cord's not useful. Um, right. Most families had more than one device, so an Ethernet cord, again, is not useful. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, if you're using it to stream, you know, videos on YouTube to do your homework or... Sure you know, Netflix or something else, then those up and download speeds are simply not sufficient. So for a lot of families, they had just made, you know, an assessment that this program didn't fit their needs and that they had to pay more because the program wasn't offering them the same internet as they would be getting if they paid 40 50 or $60 a month, which is what a lot of uh, families were paying. Right, right. So the common theme of sort of multiple devices, um, obviously families, making the decision that um, connecting to or having access was was critical to their children's success um, what was there anything sort of um, either state level or district level that you saw was different between the the uh, the three the three areas that you studied definitely I would say the two things are um, first of all that we assessed what people were doing with regards to Connect to Compete in context of decisions um, that they were making otherwise in their local environments, you know, whether or not they were choosing to privately purchase technology, but also what technology and other initiatives were coming through the district. So, you know, for example, one of our districts had a one-to-one -one laptop program. Okay. That's a very different dynamic under which to decide whether or not you're going to connect to the internet because there's at least in theory, there's a laptop that's coming home. Right. Um, so we that was the first thing, was that there were district-level differences and local-level differences in what kinds of technology were available to families. And the other thing that was really different um, was the degree to which, in all those tech initiatives that um, were being put forward by the district, 
whether or not they were emphasizing, you know, the technology itself or whether they were working to maintain and improve relationships with families and then talk to them about technology. So really, we saw a major difference between the impacts of districts putting relationships first and technology second versus pushing the technology at the expense of relationships with families. And okay. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Like, is Absolutely. When, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, what we saw, for example, in the one-to-one laptop program district uh, was that they were really pushing a lot of technology initiatives, but they weren't um, making an effort to connect with families to understand what parents' concerns or questions or confusions might be. Um, they hadn't assessed whether um, rapid transfer over to digital platforms in the classroom and for homework was going to negatively affect parents' ability to help kids with homework, which was a major problem, mm-hmm. right? I mean, what's the point of a, a, adding a digital platform if you've just made it impossible for most parents to help their kids finish their math homework? Right. Right. Which, which one is more valuable and what signal are you sending to parents about what, what their value added is to their children's learning if you switch platforms on them so that material they could have helped with before is now something that they feel unstable about because they're not used to the medium in which it's being presented anymore. Sure. I, th- I think um, I, you know technology is sort of a tool and there has to be sort of something that comes behind that um, that and you can't just simply hand over a laptop. The other thing that I think came up in your research was sort of this idea that even when the child was bringing the laptop home, it was almost like the schoolwork was being done and then the laptop was being put away, but it was over a sort of, they, they had to sign a, a document prior talking about privacy. Like there was concerns about yeah. privacy, correct? Yeah, in that district, they'd made they'd made the parents sign a pretty um, heavy-handed agreement about uh, what the laptop was going to be used for, and that the school could be watching what you were doing, and the penalties for going on websites that were forbidden, and all of this was happening um, in a state in Arizona where there were already um, very threatening. Sure streams of rhetoric around surveillance with regard to immigration and so this was another um, element of perhaps not making the appropriate overtures to make sure that the parents understand and feel engaged in the process of moving over to technology and as a result of those messages um, parents made very carefully calibrated decisions about how those laptops were used in their homes and usually kids would submit their homework, pack them up, put them by the door, and then they'd use other devices um, throughout the rest of the evening, which really um, defeated the purpose of having a laptop to bring home uh, right. because of right. the way that uh, the rhetoric around that laptop was developed. So it's, it's a bit of a cautionary tale. Um, I also want to mention that you know while the interviews were certainly... Um, you know, an end in and of themselves, and you know, we've been um, publishing and disseminating results from those interviews. We also used it as the foundation for developing questions um, for a national survey of lower income families, not just Mexican heritage families. And, uh, you know, that's an unusual way to conduct research. There's very few national surveys that start with qualitative work. 
Um, but it meant that all the questions that we asked and the categories or responses that we gave people to pick between on the survey were things that had come out of our interviews. Um, and so we did that survey with 1,200 uh, parents with kids in the same age group, grades K through 8, um, who are raising kids in households that have a, a total income that's below the, the national median, so 60, under $65,000. And that wasn't just Mexican heritage, it was obviously people of all racial and ethnic backgrounds. Uh, and so we've, we've completed that as well and um, released results from that survey. I see. So when, when you think about these outcomes, I guess I have two questions um, and before we sort of get to the goals and, and poli policy prescriptions that you talked about. My first question was, um, you know, you talked about at the beginning that prior to the, uh, the recession, there was, sort, there was sort of an expectation that this um, Connect to Compete program or just basically dollars to um, for digital equity was going to be focused on um, access job training as well as sort of a refurbished um, device whatever form that came in to sort of provide to families um, do you feel like if that had sort of been the actual prescription um, the connect to compete program would have been more successful or was it simply a case where um, sort of there the, because of the the service provided that they upload and download speeds it just didn't make sense um, it wouldn't have it, it wouldn't have worked no matter how it was provided well one of the things that's been really gratifying about the timing of the work we've done is that I think it's helped contribute to thinking about the next big initiative in policy around digital equity which is the um, you know the the realignment of lifeline funds from the FCC right um, so the Lifeline program will now include um, all families. So it's the first time we'll have a national level initiative. It's also the first time that we'll have a floor on um, acceptable internet speeds for these subsidized broadband programs. So it'll be I 10, 10 um, mega, megabits up and download speeds. And they've explicitly reserved the right to raise that floor as the technology improves which is really important right and the lifeline program was something that was being used that was used previously for sort of um, landline correct landline. It was established as um, as a way to ensure that the poorest families or households in America um, had a landline and the reason mm -hmm. they made lifeline was that the idea was that the poorest families would be disproportionately disadvantaged by not being able to afford a telephone, A, because if there's an emergency, they can't connect to the world, they don't have a lifeline, but also if there's an emergency in their area, they're going to be the last to know. And so over time, the Lifeline program has evolved um, haltingly, but on pace with the technology changes. So people have been able to use them as subsidies for cell phones um, in recent years, and now this is the first time it's going to be able to be used for broadband. And while um, the new um, lifeline provisions don't explicitly call for um, aligning you know, the, the offerings of the internet with refurbished devices and skills training, there is language in there that suggests um, that they'll be partnering with other organizations that do provide those kinds of services um, in order to make sure that 
we're not treating um, broadband access as a fait accompli. But this is this is a it's a big step forward. It's not the sure. but it's definitely a big step forward. Right. That's yeah. I, I think um, again, this was something that um, the FCC chairman had, had spoken about, and I agree with you. I think it's it's a great step forward. In fact, it was one of your sort of policy prescriptions, correct? In yeah. um, in the research that that you laid out, um, you for for those of you who are listening right now, you should definitely go to Digital Equity for for Learning org. It has the uh, the break. It's a beautifully done site. Um, it really Thank breaks you. down the research that um, that Dr. Katz has been doing, as well as her. Um, uh, obviously, you weren't the only one. You had an entire team um, that that put this together, and and has great video up there um, talking about the the research they've done, the findings, um, and continuing the conversation through this. Um, when we talk about some of the goals that you sort of seen, if if you got to where, um, you you know, if you got to decide for one day, you know, if you were if you were queen for the day, what what would you want to sort of see as we um, move this digital equity conversation, um, you know, as we move the, the uh, move things forward, what would you like to see to see happen? Uh, there's a lot of things I'd like to see happen. Um, I think there. Let me let me focus on just a few. Sure. I think one of the efforts needs to be to reformulate how we talk about digital inequality um, in a way that better matches what's actually happening in people's lives on the ground. Um, it's not an either or anymore. It's not a distinction between people who have and people who have nothing. Mm-hmm. It's spectrum and you know we've put forward this idea of being underconnected because we found in our survey that while 94% of uh, lower income parents raising school age kids have an internet connection and a device to connect to it with um, over half of them are less connected than they want to be their devices are too slow their connections been interrupted in the last year they're sharing devices amongst too many people so really, it's uh, it's not just a question of whether or not you have access, but how consistent and high quality that connection is. And I think we need to start thinking about connectivity um, as something that ranges from being severely underconnected to optimally connected. Sure. Um, and how we might move on different fronts to help people get to a place where they're as connected as they want to be. Um, the second thing is that from both the survey and uh, the interviews, it's clear that families need to be partners in the changes they want to see for their own children, for themselves, and for their communities. And that presenting them with programs that are already devised um, really runs the risk of not using scarce resources as well as they could be used, and that programs will not be sustainable when funds run out. So really, Partnering with families, considering local level elements makes a huge difference to the success of programs. And really what that is, is a piece of putting relationships first and not treating technology like tools that are, uh, treating them as tools rather than as uh, the magical elixir that's going to save us from social inequality. Sure. Uh, Digital inequality is increasingly becoming recognized as an important component of broader social inequality. Um, but it's n- the technology will not save us. Relationships will, uh, if anything will. 
and uh, using the technology as a tool to enhance those relationships is really what's going to carry us forward, I think. So right. if I were queen for a day or um, benevolent, benevolent dictator or anything, <laughs> um, it would be to devise programs that remember that the families need to be at the center of the conversation. Right. And I think one of the things you... That, that facilitate building relationships and confidence and skills is critical. Absolutely. I think one of the things that you also talked about um, as you were presenting this work is not defining these families by their deficits. And yeah. can you talk a little bit more about that and, and sort of how, how we need to approach this, um, the work and the conversation? With pleasure. Uh, so even talking about families as being lower income defines them by deficit in income. Uh, and so often, um, families that have less money are also families where parents have less education, perhaps uh, less English proficiency if they're immigrants and so forth. Uh, what our findings uncover is that thinking of these families in terms of what they don't have makes it really easy to overlook what they do have. Um, and we documented both in the interviews and in the survey an incredible amount of collaboration that's happening within families. Uh, they're making the most of what connectivity they have by engaging each other as learning partners. We found mm -hmm. intense and frequent um, interaction between parents and kids, kids helping parents, parents helping kids, siblings helping each other. If we could devise programs that harness what families are already doing and acknowledge it as important, how much more powerful would our efforts be to try to address digital inequality by meeting people where they are and acknowledging what they're already capable of doing? And we talk in, about that in much more detail in the reports that are available on digitalequityforlearning.org that uh, your listeners can, can access if they're interested in finding Absolutely. out. Absolutely. No, I'll, I'll definitely make sure that we put it in the show notes um, so that people can see it and, and we tweet it out. Um, Dr. Vicki Katz, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on. Um, this conversation was too short. I'm sure we'll have you on again as you uh, as you continue your work. I would love that. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to you and your listeners. 